1: We're back for another week of the OC Office Hour, where we talk about different things that we see in the game, some adjustments you can make, how we can make those practical all the way down to practice and drills. And joining me today is the offensive coordinator of the USFL, Michigan Panthers, Eric Marty. Eric, it's great to have you here on the podcast.
0: Thanks, Keith. Really appreciate you having me.
1: Definitely. And, And as I told you before, when I finally got a hold of you, I have been trying to run you down, been following you here, over the years, I think you do a great job, and you've you've shown that that track record of doing a great job of every, at every level. And we'll certainly have to have you back on the podcast in the off season to talk a little bit more about that journey and the, all the different things that you do. But today, we're going to focus specifically on some of the games that we watched and go through some things here thematically. So we're going to start first with the quarterback in Week One, early in the season. You want that smooth operator on the field. And sometimes that means that maybe physically, as far as talent goes, that might not be the best guy. Talk to us a little bit about the thought process for you and why you take that approach.
0: As a coaching staff, you got to be aware of that and understand that sometimes maybe the quarterback competition is going to carry out into the earliest part of the year. Because a lot of times coming out out of camp, we end up gravitating towards the guy that is just able to run the system versus the player that maybe has a little bit more talent. So you, you got to weigh the pros and cons there. But ultimately, week one's more about not beating yourself than anything. So you got to make sure that from an operational standpoint, not just your quarterback, but your entire offense, you're able to go out, function, get lined up, avoid pre-snap penalties, and, and play sound football to give yourself the best chance to win early in the season.
1: When you're looking at that particular guy, and as you said, maybe this competition is continuing to play out here in the early season, what things do you see from a quarterback attribute standpoint that you say, yeah, this is the guy who we need to start the season with?
0: I think it comes down to his ability to uh, communicate and control the offense. Is he a guy that can solve problems and put out fires at the line of scrimmage? Can he make people better around him by just getting information to where it needs to be? And so that's going to be a lot of it. If you have a guy that's just so good in the pre-snap process that he's going to be able to put out any fires and and get you lined up and, and get things corrected if there is an issue that takes a lot of pressure off some of your other young guys who may be trying to learn the offense or learn the system for the first time or all of a sudden get out there and kind of big game big moment and maybe have some nerves so if you have somebody that has that capability that may elevate their status over maybe a younger player that has a lot of ability but isn't quite as comfortable getting the people around him lined up.
1: Confidence is a big thing early in the season, and it's the confidence of the quarterback, as you said, maybe that young guy who doesn't have the confidence yet. But it's also the confidence of the play caller, and I want to address both of those with you. So let's start with that guy you just mentioned, that very talented kid who maybe doesn't have the confidence, isn't operating smoothly yet, but you see the potential that this guy could really be something for us, maybe even this season. How do you approach that? And what's your plan, I guess, to to really start to integrate him? Maybe it's little by little. I don't know if it's something that, hey, boom, it's week three. You know what? This this guy's taking your job. But an approach to that, that you start to work that guy in uh, little by little and to a point maybe where he does take over or maybe that's
0: his role for the season. Yeah, I think first it's going to start with maybe that older or poised player. What's he able to do within the framework of your offense? If he comes out and lights it up, obviously, then, You have your guy and you don't need to worry about it necessarily, but if if you come out, maybe you're playing with the less talented guy and he's getting things done operationally, but you don't feel like you're hitting the ceiling of what your offense is capable of, then I think you need to make sure you continue to rep and develop the two throughout the first couple weeks of the season additionally just putting him in a position to be successful taking off some of the verbiage window dressing whatever and simplifying the package you have for that too there's no reason to put him in a situation where he's got to get multiple motions or or some exact play calls when the strength of his game is just is just lining up and playing ball so make sure you tailor it to that and then also I think actually I saw a blog that that you wrote about how you evaluate quarterbacks and, and try and make sure it's a very defined process and I think that Also, as a coach, you need to make sure you do a great job of of defining what you're looking for out of your starter. So talent or no talent, I mean, here are the non-negotiables that we need out of our quarterback in order to play winning football within our offense.
1: Yeah, that was definitely something that was useful to us. And You bring up that article, and one of the things that I did chart on those guys was their operations. And for us, a lot of times it was, I think, a key indicator is – If you're a tempo team, especially, and at the time we were, how quickly could he get the ball snapped and do that correctly? I mean, you get up there and snap the ball, but, you know, are you doing everything right? Did you go through your processes, etc.? And that was something we factored into it. Now, that's not always easy to track even if you have your camera guys and you tell them to leave it on leave leave that film on during practice so you can measure some of those things they usually forget so we would just have somebody with a stopwatch and a chart and you know it could be a backup quarterback injured player whatever and they take care of each other but we factored those things in too and I do feel the the real live game playing time is important and when we look at our offenses you know at whatever level you're at I mean, your one is your one for a reason. There's not a lot of times where you do run into that situation where I got two guys who are as equally talented. And sometimes maybe one's better than the other in certain areas. But it it is in your best interest, especially early in the season, to figure out a way to get those guys involved. And I, I can say there's been times when it's taken a lot of, of courage for me to to pull the trigger and say, okay, this is you know your series. We plan for you to come in and get this one. And you know you 're looking at where we are, are we at in the game, et cetera and, and i 've moved it before i've i 've rolled the dice and have stuck with it before, but it was always one of those situations where if I was using that guy, i wasn 't going to put him in a bad situation there if it was maybe a critical uh time and a drive, I might not change him yet. he might get the next full time drive. But what I really learned, and I learned this I was out at actually at Mount Union yesterday, and something I saw Larry Karras Hall of Fame coach doing all the time was he would play his second quarterback regularly and he would do it you know that's easy to say Mountain Union blows out a lot of people but this was in meaningful times this was early in the game you'd always see that second guy go in and there were times you know where he's had that situation by the end of the year that guy might become the starter in the national championship game so having that plan is important and, and I think you mentioned something there that you give him something that he can handle. And so, as I said, that's something I adopted. And we might have a situation where, and we do, my best quarterback was more that drop back guy. The guy who was next for us was a little bit more of an option, runner type guy, maybe an RPO type guy, can do some different things. So we looked at what we do offensively and what can he do well to put him, set him up for success. So there's a lot of things that go into it. I think rather than, oh, I'm just going to stick this guy in right now, you have to really factor all those things in and big, bigger than anything is make sure you practice it as well.
0: Well, I think the other thing that we have to be cognizant of coaches as coaches is that until the lights come on, we don't necessarily know what we have in our quarterback, especially if it's it's a guy that hasn't played for us before. And, and we're kind of talking about playing the veteran guy that maybe isn't as talented over over the guy that is younger and has more talent but isn't quite as well versed in the system but it may be a situation that goes the other way you may you may be starting the guy in week one that you think just has so much talent he has to be on the field and he looks great in seven on seven he looks great throwing routes on air but all of a sudden you put him behind an offensive line he doesn't see in process versus you put the guy in that season processes that maybe doesn't have the arm talent he gets his chance to play like you said in the second quarter of of week one or however you want to try and manage that, that quarterback situation where you're giving multiple guys opportunities and all of a sudden the game's moving slower and things look better for him. So I, I do think, like you said, there's a ton of value to getting multiple quarterbacks opportunities to play early in the, in the year, especially if you're in a situation where you're not super familiar with your guys um whether you know whether it's new quarterbacks in the program because of transfers or or being at the JC level where there's a lot of turnover you just don't know what you have in a quarterback until the lights come on and it, it's game time
1: yeah and that seems to be more and more the trend as we get into these different things that are happening like the transfer portal but you see it even at at the high school level as well as kids moving around a little bit so yeah having a plan for that's important And I think having a plan for yourself as a play caller is important as well. As we talk about quarterback confidence, we certainly want to do things to build their confidence. But I think it's like a 50-50 deal. That part of that is uh, I want to call things I'm I'm confident in that I know he can operate in. So when you you think of that, what are some general things you look at to get that guy going early, get him in a rhythm early in the game, build that confidence in week one and, and moving forward?
0: to me it it starts with whether he's an older or younger player experienced or not does he get the ball out or do you need to find ways to get the ball out for him and and so the the quarterbacks that I love playing with are guys that you call a drop back pass and or play action shot and it's not there the ball gets checked down and you're in second and three right that's every coordinator's dream versus you a guy you call quick game or drop back for and It's pat-pat and we start running around and it turns into a scramble play. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. It's a lot harder to call plays for that guy and have confidence in that guy. So, you know, again, is is it a guy that you're going to be able to call your base stuff and the ball's going to get out and it looks like your offense should? Or is it a guy that you need to help him get the ball out? When I say help him get the ball out, the perimeter screens, the called screens, the boot, the, the simple quick game, one read type throws or RPO throws, some of those things where Okay, let me let me help this young guy. Not give him a ton to see, or not make him play through multiple cr- progressions from a pocket. Let me let me just give him the, the called things, and and we'll get it rolling like that.
1: Definitely, it's something that you saw Notre Dame use early in the game against Ohio State. I think their quarterback, who was a new guy, had eight completions in a row, or six. It was something like that. But he, they definitely established that rhythm. Tommy Reese did a good job of calling plays that he knew the quarterback could be successful with. So there weren't a lot of intermediate throws or downfield shots. And it's a lot of quick game or screen, simple things, you know, shallow routes or, or stuff like that, as you think about the, the different concepts that you have, simple things that a quarterback can complete and start to have some confidence in. It's right, you, you, you want, you know, related to basketball, you want your guys shooting some layups here before he starts chucking threes. And, no doubt. and I think that's, you know, that's something that, I saw that Notre Dame did very well early on in the game. And, you know, you mentioned that guy, those guys who are going to get out of the the pocket, right, in those situations. On the defensive side, that's something you really need to account for, right, those contained rushes. How many times do you see that quarterback in trouble and then, boom, he's out on the edge and not contained? Ohio State, you saw that quite often now. I think the thing you saw in a composed C.J. Stroud was that his eyes were staying down the field still. He wasn't scrambling to run. He was scrambling to continue to throw, which is a skill you have to build in your quarterback as well. So let's talk a little bit about that idea, both from the standpoint of maybe, you know, the defensive guys listening, some things you got to think about there, especially what you'd want to do against the quarterback, but also how do you start to train that guy? that when all of a sudden the bullets are flying and things are happening unexpectedly, when you, you do are able to escape, that you still maintain your status as a passer?
0: Yeah, well, one, one caveat there, and you, I think you kind of hit on it with the Notre Dame game, you also have to factor in what your offensive line is capable of. Because if you're playing in a game where there's a talent differential between what you have up front and the defense, especially the defensive line, uh, or you're playing an elite defense like in Ohio State, you you could have Peyton Manning back there, but if you're just going to call drop back, he's going to get snowed under, and it's going to be some negative plays. So, in addition to to helping your quarterback kind of get acclimated with some early timing throws, those different things, also varying the rhythm and the launch point early in the season, early in the game, to really help your old line get some confidence and get going, and and I think that's something you see as well with especially week one is is the quarterback comfortable in the pocket great he'll make reads and throws does he feel like he's under constant pressure and and now it's what you just talked about where guys are starting to bounce out of the pocket and the good ones keep their eyes down the field other guys maybe don't but uh you got to make sure that it's you know you properly analyze how well your offensive line can play up front versus your opponent and, and what things you're capable of calling because there are going to be games where you just say, you know what, as much as I love all these drop back play action concepts and I think they're great, we're just not going to be able to hold up and read them out because we'll be under pressure.
1: Yeah, definitely. And And I think conceptually there's things you can look at that work well in your offense. There's a lot of things you can do to help an offensive line, whether they're lacking in talent or maybe they're, they're outmanned from a physical standpoint. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do to help them, as you said, by moving the launch point. One of the great things we talked to, about it on the first time on this podcast. The Tony DeMeo, who who was doing it forever at uh, Charleston, was the quick naked, right. You're looking at boundary hits, right? Boundary hits, whatever. And if it's not there, don't force it. Get out, and now you're moving the other way. And you know it's yep. usually something. A lot of teams have quick game. A lot of teams have that that naked or that bootleg type of pass it's just pairing those things together and figuring out how to do it and I think the key thing is just figuring out who and how you block that edge and there's some different yeah. ways you could do it with the back or just keeping your wing in and releasing the back out that way but what I found in, in using that the nice thing about it is it really does as your quarterback's opening that way those safeties aren't necessarily running to out leverage what's happening away from where he's looking. So you do get those opportunities coming back the other way where, you know, running your naked concepts, whether that's a flood or, you know, we would just take what we normally did our normal rules. If that second receiver, sometimes we put him on just a, a slander, we call it the win route. If he didn't get thrown the ball, then he was just into an over route across the field. So a lot of things you can do there. Easy concept. Definitely builds confidence, both in the quarterback, the O-line, and probably you as a play caller as well.
0: Yeah, getting to some of just the the yes, no, and now if it's not there, now I get a chance to sprint out dash back to the field. Now I'm just playing schoolyard ball with my eyes and working through a progression and getting out of the pocket and feeling comfortable there. I think that's absolutely another another really quarterback-friendly concept you can get to, especially early in the year.
1: Yeah, the the screen game is another thing. You mentioned that, and I know one of the things you saw – quite a bit, was the screen and go, which is a a great compliment. You think about, okay, if I am going to start my guy off and get him into a rhythm with screens and throw a lot of screens early, now having a shot play off of that, call it the right time, is is definitely something that's going to be you know, an explosive for you to do it the right way.
0: Well, I just think those are simple explosive-type concepts or at least with the potential to be explosive that early in the year you want to do as many things that – that test defensive discipline as possible. And we, we also talked about empty and unbalanced and different things, but the screen and go is, is just one more element that, yeah, okay, week four, week five, they've seen it and they've, they've coached the heck out of it. But week one, maybe they got in camp, maybe they didn't. And it, it can be a chance for offensively you to get a gimme if it hits as far as just kind of getting a, a layup on a vertical shot.
1: So let's talk about that, that play a little bit conceptually. Cause it seems simple, but there's definitely some keys to the timing, the technique, how you're going to sell it. So, what are the key coaching points you look at when teaching a screen and go?
0: Well, I think the teams that do it best are the ones that a lot of times it's three by one tempo into the boundary, and they've hit you with it a couple times. So now, defensively, you, you feel panicked just to go match it, right? Especially if you're a quarters type team, you're trying to figure out if you want to get the nickel over there. and. They've they've hit the boundary screen a couple times to hurt you and now they got you scrambling. And now here comes the fake now and or the now from the outside receiver and the, the stocking goes from two and three getting getting down the sideline down the seams. I, I think that can be the best way. Uh another way I've done it on occasion, which can be a really quarterback friendly way is you actually boot to it and you boot to some sort of like now screen and and number two fake blocks and goes and now at least you're not asking your guy to see it and read it out from the pocket although i do think you can manufacture a a now or excuse me a screen go that that hits pretty quickly that's not a super slow developing play but you know again those are a couple different ways i think the best way is to have that fastball and run a couple times in week one and then all of a sudden here comes the shot off it but if you do want to move your quarterback boot maybe go 3 by 1 have the h back or tight end secure the edge back to the field number 1 runs the now screen number 2 fake block and go down the sideline and you can also bring the backside x on the, on the drag in case in case that isn't there he's got a chance to to work back to a late crosser
1: and I did see that that movement type of screen I cannot remember who was running it though did you see that this this last weekend
0: I may have seen it. I can't can't give you the team, but I want to say there was some sort of movement to one that that showed up this week.
1: So that block and go guy, uh, again, the sell is so important. And it's funny. You see people try to do this multiple ways. Some are very effective. Some are not selling it at all. But in coaching that guy up in order to get him, again, the right time, to the right place so you do have that big play, what things do you coach him up
0: on? I think the guy's got to have a little feel and savvy for it, but you know, make eye contact, break down, and then, then you hope that guy has some ability to just separate. And this depends on your guy and your roster, but against good defenses and good defensive players, it's it's not like you're going to fool them into just jumping the, the now screen and getting a walk-in. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to get people to freeze their feet and trigger just enough that, now now you get a chance to get a step on them and, and beat them that way. So just getting in position, giving enough of a cell, enough of a breakdown that they get feet to freeze. And once they see the feet freeze and people start to trigger, okay, go and get to your landmarks. And, and I think the critical coaching concept in all the, double move type stuff is we always talked about we don't we don't want a 15-yard penalty in a a pass interference call we want six points so make sure you're really disciplined and physical trying to avoid the reroute trying to avoid the panicked. let me just take this pass interference call be physical get shoulder down avoid the collision and let's go get six points
1: the other thing you mentioned here as we were talking about this is some of those tough formations like formation into the boundary, rule-breaking formations that typically teams have one adjustment to and ways that you can attack with those. I know you saw quite a bit of that here in week one.
0: Yeah, a lot of unbalanced four four by zero with especially the 11 personnel attached tight end and and I think Michigan hit a big play running zone read with the h back slicing back to the side with no eligibles. Saw some of that, and then, then also a good amount of empty in week one, which just comes back to what you said. If it's a team that hasn't seen a bunch of empty, they probably have one, maybe two empty checks, and you feel like, okay, if if we're going to get into some critical situations, let's, let's jump in empty because they'll have less of a – package to defend it or always line up and empty and reload the back and hopefully you get them to check to a really really base look maybe potentially in a critical situation where you don't want to get blitzed or something of that nature
1: you mentioned some four by zero some unbalanced unbalanced definitely causes headaches for a defensive coordinator if you do it right i think Part of it is personnel, right? Who's who's the extra guy over? Can he really make a, a difference for you in the blocking surface, et cetera? But mm-hmm. types of things you saw out of some of those four by zeros?
0: Yeah, the like I said, the one was the, the zone read going with the the slice avoid guy coming back in the boundary. Also it was it may have been a week zero game. I'm trying to think who it was, but they had a play-action double post look, and they got that corner to the zero side down low, and they dragged them all the way across off that, which actually I had a lot of respect for that play call because you you don't necessarily know how week zero you're going to get it played, right? You know, week week two, week three, you see somebody run that formation. You say, hey, this is how they're going to defend it. Okay, we can run that deep cross and get behind the corner off play action, but it takes a little more – you got to be a little more brave to call that thing week zero and just try and read it out. So I I, I thought that was a heck of a play call.
1: Yeah, I know we talked a, a little bit about a concept like that. Dan, Carroll, and I last week we saw in Nebraska and Northwestern. It might have been something in that game.
0: I'm pretty sure that was the game, absolutely.
1: Again, those formations, looking at those, number one from the defensive standpoint, I know our defensive coordinators throughout the season just would have some kind of a period – where they handle those, even if if it's a walkthrough, I know one of my defensive coordinators called it funky formations period, and you know just <clears throat> working their alignments towards it. So defensively, you certainly ha- certainly have to have a plan, but from an offensive standpoint, I think what's interesting if you can see some of those early, I think you can start to to plan some packages. I know from. My standpoint when I I was planning, I always like to start with the knowns and, okay, how are they going to line up? Not just how, but who are they going to line up in some of these certain formations that allows us to start at least the basis of a game plan? I always like to start with the knowns rather than, hey, we're going to plan this formation and we think they're going to do this, but we don't know. So uh, just looking for those opportunities, I guess, as you game plan and you're reviewing film.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, kind of the way I start my process is just rolling through that cut. formation, cut up, and how do they line up to this formation, and do I like it? If the answer is yes, it's in the game plan. If I don't like what they are giving us versus that formation, then then you get it out. You know, for the exact same reasons you said. And So I think that's that becomes a really easy starting point and I think you want to be able to show your players the visual when you talk about some of those unique formations or the reasons why you're putting things in I think it gets hard if you're if you're just kind of saying hey we're going to we're going to inject this unbalanced or this funky formation that we haven't seen anything like it on tape so we don't necessarily know but this is what we think and sometimes that doesn't always that vision doesn't always translate to the players versus it's a lot easier to explain to them that The reason we're putting in the 4 by 0 unbalanced with the double post with number two being able to go all the way across the field is because they're going to nail down their corner. We know he's going to fit play action, and now we get a chance to read it out against a one-high safety, et cetera, et cetera. So just being able to communicate a plan to your players and and the the reasons why you're putting in some of those things, obviously, is a lot easier when you have visual plays to show them the reasons after week one.
1: From a play calling standpoint, when you do plan some of those, when do you like to work those in? I know sometimes I would want to look at them in openers. Uh, Sometimes it might be as we settled into the game plan and maybe we're a few series in and we could use that. The thought might be, hey, we we need a little bit of a spark here or they've kind of settled in on what we're doing. And then I, I know there's been times where we've planned it for you know, let's let's pop this out in the second half. But what are your thoughts on using some of those things and when you do it from a, a strategy standpoint?
0: Off gut right now. I'd say a lot of people were calling them in, in kind of the high red zone plus territory off the turnover because it was it was that turnover shot play. Just watching week zero and week one, I think is when a lot of that stuff was showing up. Some of the unbalanced stuff, obviously, getting near near the goal line makes sense because you're trying to trying to manufacture run game in in close quarters. But yeah, I think it can be all, all those different things you you said, kind of circling back to what we were talking about initially, getting quarterbacks confidence early, early in the season, early in games. I mean, also as offensive coordinators, there's a lot of that. I mean, if you're going in with your, your third, third year, senior starter, you're going to come out guns blazing being wide open. But if you're starting a, a, a first year starter, you know, how do you, how do you get the, that confidence and, how do you have the confidence not to just be run, run, run on every first down? And so, you know, being willing to cut it loose. And I think it always helps when you're able to have a conversation with the head coach and and kind of get that direction on on how you want to attack as as a program. Because I think sometimes as a coordinator, uh, you're thinking, all right, you know, as long as we don't throw a couple pick sixes and put the ball on the ground, we should have a chance here and you get a little conservative accordingly versus – if you know if you're on the same page with the head man and he's telling you to be aggressive early, early on downs and be aggressive in the game, you know I think that that takes some of the weight off play calling off of off of you and allows you to call more of a wide open game. For
1: sure, I think there's an important point there too. I, I like that idea of utilizing it, you know, in certain areas in the red zone because. Also as you're you're breaking down an opponent, you start to see where his breakpoints are. Right. It's it's easy to say, well, these are the zones we look at, but I think a lot of times you still have to consider, you know, we might say this is uh, you know, the uh high red zone, et cetera. And in this area they're gonna do this. Where where do they start to change? And I think that if you have a funky formation, that point where maybe you want to keep them out of a pressure situation is a good time to use it. I was just yeah, writing a little absolutely. bit of an article uh, for for the defensive side on adjustments and in, in that I made the point that, you know, offensive guys are going to look at those situations where they know when they hit this area of the field, you're going to become a pressure team. That's a great opportunity that for them to use tempo, but it's also a great opportunity for them to use these formations that are going to knock you out of your call and get you into a you know, your adjustment for that.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point.
1: Situations, that leads us into that conversation. I know you saw quite a few things that are teachable moments here from a situational standpoint. So let's talk about some of those. And I think the first one you mentioned to me was third and short.
0: Yeah, just having, having a, a, a really good plan for third and short, which obviously you want to have a, a great plan for third and short every week you play, but... Uh, I thought thought the University of Washington coach DeBoer had had a couple great third and short answers. Uh, They had one. It was actually an empty quarterback was under center. Uh, They had a a kind of a tight end wing player on each side and then a couple receivers, and I think maybe the running back was tucked in as a wing. Got up, hard counted it, didn't get anybody to jump, looked over at the sideline like they were going check with me, and all of a sudden the quarterback was back under center and they they sneak it and get the – the first down on third and one. So I thought that was just kind of a, a unique little wrinkle, um, which I think typically you probably see a little bit later in the season once they've seen that you're someone that likes to quarterback sneak a little bit. But again, it was just a great little wrinkle to get the defense off balance. And then they also had just a nice – it was a fourth and one, fourth and two play early in the game. They got into the 22 personnel. Uh, they had an inline tight end on both sides with a tight end wing player to the left as well. And then they had their single receiver out to the right, brought him in fly motion and just kind of window dressing and then had a zone strong play with a, still a backside tight end, the slicer going backside as well. So just a lot, of, a lot of surface covered up plus the slicer, plus the fly action going, which, you know, again, week one, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty tough defend there on fourth and one, fourth and two, and they're able to pop a gap and hit it for a big play. So, you know, a couple of really nice situational answers there.
1: With, let me ask you about that twenty two personnel. Were they yeah I didn't see that game. Were they under center for that or were they in the gun?
0: They they were in the gun and I believe it was I believe it was pistol.
1: Yeah, that's the the fly, talk about that for a second. Um the, the fly motion definitely is something that adds misdirection. Fly and then orbit motion and some people call it ghost motion. I know, I know it has a lot of names, but the motion where somebody goes behind the quarterback Yep. I think those start to add misdirection, pull people, uh, make people play honest. I, I know, uh, trying to think, I think we were playing Wilmington. And when you look at it from a surface standpoint, it looked like Wilmington was just in a nine-man box. Their safeties were uptight. They're playing too high. But, I mean, they're under 10 yards. And, you know, we're running the ball with, I think we were using orbit motion at the time and pistol. And I remember the head coach saying, why are you running the ball there in a nine-man box? Well, I'm holding him with the action of the fly, and I'm holding him on all that. The quarterback's coming out the other way, and the way we would run our pistol is he was he was reversing out of it anyway. So now we have this very wing tee type of misdirection. Those safeties, especially if you align them tight, and I thought this is if they put them a little bit deeper – it might have changed things because those guys could see, okay, he doesn't have the ball and then fill the middle. But when they're down that tight, they really can't do that. So we really turned it, you know, what looked like a nine-man front into a 3-2 box and just ran the football on him with no safety support.
0: Mm. Yeah, and and I think anytime you bring, especially fly or, like you said, orbit motion, you may, you may see a loaded box and then you may see five players make an adjustment and all of a sudden it's not not a nine man front because right. only six guys are fitting the run on exactly. the snap of the ball. And and now you get that advantage back. And then it just goes back to the, what we were talking about earlier with empty, unbalance, all the different things, those wrinkles, in week one, you, defensively, you don't get an opportunity to coach everything in camp. And you may be in, in a situation where you play an offense every day in your program that runs fly motion unbalanced and does a bunch of stuff, or you may be a, a team that, is goes against a pretty basic 10 personal spread every day where you don't get a lot of that. So, you know, you're it just comes back to you're trying to you're trying to do as many things to test that defensive coaching staff and that defensive discipline early in seasons to say see if hey, have they covered the situation? Have they covered flat motion? Have they covered the orbit motion? and and test their ability to build a different discipline defense that says okay you know these are fitters and we know we're going to adjust with our safety and and fourth and one we have the discipline to ignore that motion and just go fit it or um or is it the latter so you know all that all that stuff early in the season is, is really tough
1: yeah the the timing on that is important too so while i say it's a great way to add misdirection understand that if you are going to add that to your offense, there's definitely going to be some time on task. There's going to be a little bit of a learning curve on when do we snap the ball? You know, where does the guy get to? And then the variations maybe in the different people who you have doing that. So fly motion, the misdirection still has to time up very well. And I know taking that into consideration, having at one point run a ton of, of fly, um, having learned it from Mark Speckman, who's now at UC Davis, was that uh, the the timing is so important. So that's where I tended to use, if I wanted to get misdirection, orbit motion and getting him behind was a little bit more forgiving on on the timing of it. And we could time it up better without, especially if, you know, for us, we're in the pistol all the time. So if you're in gun, definitely much difficult, more difficult on the timing because of the speed of the snap, all those different things. So I don't think that just saying, well, this is a great answer. We're going to throw in some fly this week. orbit is always you know again you have to spend the time on it too to make it right with the timing and and the misdirection
0: yeah there's no doubt uh we do need do need to break some news here mark speckman the guru d fly is actually now the offensive coordinator at uh clarion university okay i missed that one i did
1: not know he moved i I haven't talked to him uh, in a while so oh, it's good to hear he's he's running an offense again. I know he was the running backs coach at UC Davis.
0: Yep. Yeah. Well, as a, as a West coast D3 guy myself, you know, his, his reputation uh, precedes itself with everything he was doing uh, up, up in the Pacific Northwest with all the, the fly stuff there. It's uh oh boy, I'm I'm blanking on the, uh, the Oregon school that he was at. Willamette. Help me out. Willamette. There we go. There we go. The beautiful Willamette Valley, but uh, no, I'm, I'm with you. That's, that's, that's a great wrinkle as well. And, And, you know, always stressing the quarterbacks get that ball snapped early because if they're going full speed, they're going to, you know, that fly is going to hit. So trust it and get that ball snapped. And uh, I do think the challenge with it, though, offensively, and and it helps if you have a a quarterback that can run and you can get to some power read stuff. But, you know, the, the fly actions, window dressing is great. But how are you getting the ball at the perimeter to force teams to continue to honor it throughout the year?
1: 100%. Uh, and I know I I interrupted you there to to go off on that little tangent. We were talking about uh, the short yardage there, and I know you had another thought on that.
0: Yeah, uh, no touched touched on the touched on the quarterback sneak piece, and uh, as well as the the heavier package with with some fly with window dressing. I mean, I think those are those are really good answers. And also, the other thing that showed up a lot this week was a lot of of pin pull, crack toss, kind of three by one bunch stuff but I thought some teams did a really good job of getting to, and now you're not just running do or zone, wake up the middle all the time on third and short. You got a chance to get the ball to the perimeter and a little bit of space.
1: Yeah, I like pin-pull um, for a lot of different reasons. I know when we first installed it, uh, and, and I don't like doing this, um, we messed around just slightly in camp to look at it and knew we needed to, to look at it more in this particular year, but we wanted to use it uh, maybe in week four against a, an odd front team, and it provided us some great answers and became part of our offense. What I like about Pimp Poll, though, if you are in that situation where you say, hey, I need something on the perimeter, I do think it's not as difficult to put that in if, if for whatever reason you didn't cover it in camp. I think it's a scheme that as long as you can understand the rules – most of the time, you have those blocks in there anyway, where the, your guys are going to pull and, and get out front, or you're, you know, you're going to down block on somebody. So from that standpoint, it's much easier than saying, "Oh, we're going to put an in inside zone this week."
0: Yep, no, it's hard hard to install a wide zone in in week five. A little easier to get get pin and pull going. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, and it is it is a good answer to a lot of different things. I like it too, and we used it quite a bit out of that bunch, right? The the bunch sets. Uh, Just because now you really get some angles on guys who can come down on the inside. And if you got some athletic linemen getting those pullers out there. Now you're running just like a a buck sweep, right? You're running the ball in that alley. It's not necessarily going to get all the way out to the sideline. It's not a a junior high toss play. But you're going to create an alley there where you have that wall to the inside and you have guys kicking out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a great play that mirrors up the zone weak or power or whatever you're trying to get in that B-gap, C-gap area to your three-by-one kind of bunch set with the the off tight end, and now all of a sudden the ball's on the perimeter when people start anchoring down and really trying to defend that area. So that's definitely a, a good answer to have in your back pocket.
1: It's something, too, and, and Jeff Mullen brought this up last week on OC Office Hour, is that it relieves some of the pressure on your lineman, right? And he was talking specifically, you know, about a center as an example, who's, who's got to reach on a zone, a zone play and is always reaching, reaching, reaching. And you give him a a block back play. It feels for him like a playoff, right? Because it's, it's not as difficult for him. And essentially that's what you get with a, a pin pull play is that you do ease things up a little bit for your offensive lineman. And if we're talking about this time of year, again, getting your guys into a rhythm, trying to make it easier for them with a play call that this isn't a bad thing to have in in your menu of plays to run, especially here early season.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I think you hit it on the head when you said it, it gives you an answer to expecting your center to consistently win on that frontside zone block now you get a chance to switch it up and and especially if it's a matchup maybe that he hasn't been consistently winning throughout the game you don't want to have to go there on third and short and watch him get pressed by a really really good interior d lineman
1: so to, to wrap things up here coach we've got the end of game situations two minute i know there's a lot of exciting games here that have come down to the last minute of the game one last night which was just insane the way that game went but you definitely saw some things in uh, the two-minute situation I know one of those you picked up on you said you were seeing the score and you you watched a little bit of FIU Bryant
0: yeah flipped over there I think ESPN 3 probably got me there but they were in a dogfight and they had to go down and score at the end of the game you know I don't I don't know how much confidence they had offensively at that point but they had to find a way And, and credit to that coaching staff they get on the plus side of the field and all of a sudden they go they go three by one into the boundary and and put their best player best player to the field and and, uh brian's playing kind of a quarters look so they're now setting that nickel into the boundary and you can tell they're just a little bit uncomfortable playing corner out there by himself the safety's out there but does he have to take three vertical coming from the far side And, and fiu ends up hitting a couple out routes to the to number one to the field and and just going back to a lot of what we talked about, putting that defense in a situation that they probably did not cover in all of spring and all of fall, through no fault to the coaching staff. But you know, two minute drill three by one of the boundary isn't something that right. most of us think to cover. And so all of a sudden, when they really need to find an answer or find a way to to get a a, a win for that for FIU with that new staff and Bryant's a, not one you want to drop in your opener. All of a sudden they, they came up with, I thought, just a really, really good answer, which allowed them to get down in field goal range, kick a field goal and, and get to overtime where they found a way to, to, to get a win. So props to coach McIntyre and his staff.
1: The two minute situation certainly requires a lot of practice. And I know particularly at the high school level, maybe you don't get to it as much as you want or early season or in camp. Um, but I, I I believe it's something you have to have it every week we would always do it uh, our last you know practice of the week was shells on at the college level you know on a Thursday it was it'd be the last thing we did on a Thursday it was a competitive period there was no tackling um, you know pretty much on the line though these guys always didn't listen it was you know get into your rush lanes and then shut it down and for the offensive line is you know you you get them stopped you you know you make your punch shut it down so you don't have the high contact stuff going but you're operating with your receivers and full procedures we would put time on the clock we would use the chains uh, we you know we would use the uh, guys as as the officials spotting the ball etc but there's a lot to it right there's usually for us it was a set of plays where we would run so we could get those repped every single week um, every now and then throw one in like you said that's going to just blow the the tendencies but also the kind of the procedures of how you handle it in that situation but for you what what do you feel are the best ways to approach the two minute both in terms of install especially early season and then getting it repped
0: yeah I think that it always helps if you are a a tempo no huddle team right because that that takes a lot of stress off you as far as you don't have to build out Uh, eight play menu with some code words that because you're typically a huddle wristband team um, so if you are a huddle wristband team you you really need to prioritize it um but um you know the other part is you just need to make sure you have a plan as a coordinator and and get into that menu of of eight to ten plays max where okay we can we can get these things called and and get them lined up if we are in a really mayday type of hey we only got probably three or four snaps, and we have no time to waste. Or, or if you're in a little more of a controlled two-minute drill, regardless, these are the six to eight plays that I know give us a chance. And I don't think it's about being perfect and having necessarily the perfect call, but it's about putting some good options out there for your guys and also giving them plays that they know and they can hear and line up fast and get a ball snap to give, give your players a chance to go make a play at the end of the
1: game. I know one thing I liked, would love to hear your your thoughts on it, but not initially. You know, when we put the initial stuff in 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 camp in the early season, we would call it. But as we would, especially, maybe around week three, four, definitely by mid-season, when we got into those, I really liked to let the quarterbacks call it. Now, I'm still going to call it in the game, but I liked to see what they would do and where their comfort level was. What did they really feel good about in those situations? It would tell me a little bit as a play caller too, it actually would tell me a lot that, hey, he didn't touch this play at all, right? We may may want not want to call that one yet and let's find out why though. But uh, as far as, as handling the mental part for the quarterback, that's you know something we would do with that. Anything else you do to train them or get them used to these procedures?
0: Yeah, I I really like what you just said. I think that's great. I think different personality types at quarterback kind of gravitate to it differently. You you know, you probably have the kid that would like to call the, the whole game and, and and you know, says, Hey coach, you know, I'm good. I got it from here versus the guy that if you say, Hey, go ahead and call it, he barely will come up with a play call, but especially if it's the first group, I think that's awesome as far as giving him a chance to take some ownership and exactly what you said. He'll he'll just lead you to the calls he likes. Uh, the best no I mean I I think the one one thing I I would touch on is is trying to have some sort of uh, movement pass out of that package um, especially if you get in a situation where you can't take a sack but you have a couple plays to burn I thought I thought that kind of showed up in the Utah game at the end I think it was second down where they end up throwing the they they call snag to the field there and it definitely a very valid football call and it didn't just quite work out but you get you get on a movement type of pass where your quarterback has a play or two to burn. Now I think he's under a little less stress of trying to make that read and throw from the pocket. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think it, it comes back to what you said, just trying to make sure that you get your reps in, in a quality situation. The two-minute drill, the one thing I like that you talked about is making sure that the pass rush is minimized because I also think for the defensive side of the ball, you go live two minute drill, and the D lines just kicking the O lines butt, and all of a sudden they feel like they're doing a great job of covering people, even even if they aren't. Right. And because the ball's not getting out, and then all of a sudden you get into that game situation week one, and those that D lines gassed at the end of the game, and there is no pass rush, and now you got to cover like crazy back there. So I I thought that was a a, a great uh, little nugget that you tossed in there.
1: Last thing I want to cover, and this came up last night, and as I thought about it, it's a situation that I never coached. I think it's when you need the coach at the high school and, and college level, is uh the chains move. You've you've gained that first down, but there's one second on the clock. So on the whistle, that ball is snapped. I I never had a procedure for it. I never covered it in last plays. We would certainly practice last plays, but I, I don't recall ever talking to my players about that situation with knowing there's one second on the clock when the whistle blows. We don't have time for cadence We because if we do, yeah. the play's over. So it was that situation. Now, I, there was a whole bunch of discussion going on from the coaching staffs with each other, with their players as they were um, reviewing that play, and then FSU ended up taking a timeout. But I, I really thought they would snap the ball on the whistle. Has that been something you ever faced, and how did you prepare your teams for it?
0: Yeah, that's that's a a great point. I just wrote that not, note down. I I think if you can get to that situation and and cover it, but I also think it's it's really important that just in general you you talk about winding the clock off the off the uh, when, being ready to snap a ball when in situations when when they're going to wind the clock on on the whistle uh, once it gets marked for play, and and just going over that situation and and practicing it where your guys are comfortable uh, getting the ball snapped almost immediately after it gets wound. Because the worst thing is when you're sitting there screaming, it's your guys that they need to be ready because everybody's relaxed because the, the clock stopped and they got a couple minutes, a couple seconds break, and then all of a sudden they wind the clock and you burn six, seven seconds while your quarterback stands the last scrimmage. So, you know, I think one one thing I saw, visited Cal a couple years ago, uh, Coach Wilcox, asked, he had – a spreadsheet of situations that he would cover during camp and kind of nightly meetings. And, and, you know, it covered everything from uh, the kickoff going on the sideline and, and putting one foot out of bounds and, and picking it up. So you, so now it's a kickoff out of bounds type of situation. And, and this is where I think as a coach, you want to try and be organized as possible, keep a laundry list of those situations. And so now you get a chance to at least address them uh throughout the course of camp. And hopefully you kind of introduce some of these concepts, which may pay big dividends at some point during the year. Yeah,
1: for sure. And in, in, in addressing that situation, just thinking through, okay, how would I handle this? And and, and I'm speaking to the coaches out there. I, I highly suggest this becomes part of your last plays scenario. I know everybody usually includes those each week and practices those, but this situation where there is, I don't know what it is if it's one second on the clock, two, three, I think you can say go and still get get it snapped, but having your guys really ready, not moving around, everybody gets yeah. up there and gets sets, and it's that last play. You probably have to have a code word for that that lets them know when we hear the whistle it's snapped, and we're going yeah uh yeah. i don't I don't see any other way, and you gotta be careful with that. I mean your guys if they mess it up, right. Uh, procedurally, especially your center, the game's over. They're going to run the clock. The game's over. So, it's something I would practice. I would have a code word for it. How often is it going to come up? It might not even come up in the season, but you know what? When it does, it's it's a chance to win the ball game or lose the ball game, and you always want your guys prepared for those situations, regardless.
0: Yeah, you hope. Yeah, hope you give them a chance. So you just you just created uh, the one word whistle play. Everybody. Everybody line up and we're going Vert and nobody moves till the ball gets snapped. And then we're going and uh, yeah, let's go try and make a play to win it. But no, I, I, I think, I think that's, that's spot on. And that's also one of the really, really good talking points that staffs can be having uh, today and, and tomorrow in their staff means, Hey, would you, what would you see this week and what situations came up that, that, maybe we haven't touched on as our program that we need to make sure we're ready for this week, heading into week two.
1: They're always out there. I I, I said it before. I think it was uh, either in a podcast or an article from, you know, the, from the the movie quote, every given Sunday, the inches we need are all around us, right? We have to find those situations and make sure we're prepared for them and uh, not surprised when they come up.
0: Absolutely. That's, That's the name of the game right there. Just trying to, trying to, shave off every little inch and trim the fat to a point where when it, when it adds up at the end of the night, you're, uh, you're in the victory circle, not saying what if. Coach, well, I really appreciate
1: you taking the, the time here with us as I said before, would certainly love to have you back on the podcast again. And, and, guys, once we finish up here, I will share some links and show notes to Coach's resources. He's an open book and does an incredible job with his offense, so I'll share those as well. But, Coach, again, thank you for the time and I look forward to talking to you more in the
0: future. Keith, my pleasure, and, and I, w- I would love to do it. you